I'm Sean. Hi, I'm Jordana. And welcome to Meaningful Play, the podcast where we discuss our favourite medium, video games, and the cultural and social issues that surround them on individual and collective levels. Welcome to episode eight of Meaningful Play. Uh, today we're going to talk a bit about genre theory. But before, as usual, we'll have a bit of a chat about what we've been playing this week. So, Jordana, what have you been up to? Okay, so <laughs> I've actually been in the process of helping my mum move and next week I am going to be moving. Exciting! So, it, really exciting, yeah. but it has really limited the amount of time I have to game at the moment. I have, however, bought Final Fantasy VII on the Switch, so I'm hoping that can be my, like, can't sleep, I should play a video game title. Ah, uh, okay, so because it's on the Switch, you can play ha- without the TV, right? So yeah. it's nice to play in bed. That's a good yes, idea. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah and it's can fantastic. Do they change it so you can save any time? Yeah, you can basically say you can just turn it off and then turn it back on, and you know. You're oh, back that's to your, good then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah like it's that. pretty good. I, for most games I've come across so far, maybe some games okay. like have some kind of functionality that turns that off. I'm not sure, but I think with Final Fantasy VII, given that it's a turn-based RPG, yeah. <laughs> just leave it forever. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I did, however, also buy Assassin's Creed Odyssey, Watch Dogs, <laughs> and its sequel recently. Whoa. So I'm particularly looking forward to playing the Torment of Hades DLC for Odyssey, which is actually why I picked it up. Oh. Um, I've been really fascinated by Hades like since a child um, as a primary figure in Greek mythology, um, and I've read so much critical acclaim online um, regarding Cassandra, so the oh, female player yeah. character in Odyssey. And I've always liked hellish environments in games. Probably that's because we're, that's where I'm going. You, <laughs> you in, in your bloodborne. Yeah, like. exactly, exactly. So I'm looking forward to really diving into that one. So can I check what? So what's the deal? So you go into like Greek? You go to the hell? underworld. That's awesome. Yes. That's yeah. really cool. I love yeah. technology. I know. And there is also a DLC called Fate of Atlantis. Oh. Yeah. So you, I think you meet Persephone. Is that how you say oh, it? Oh, Persephone. Persephone. Yeah. You meet Persephone <laughs> there. And apparently, like, sorry for spoilers, but she betrays you. And that's how you end up in the underworld. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny because when I played Origins, I when I played the Curse of the Pharaohs DLC, I was like, this should be the original game. Like, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't even DLC. There's more, yeah. like... Love Origins, love Egypt. There is more story in Curse of the Pharaohs than the actual original Origins game. And they've embraced the mythology. And that's the thing I keep bleeding to you about. It's like, yes. embrace the mythology. <laughs> Thank you. So that sounds really great. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm really interested in seeing, like, seeing if this is a real sort of contrast to the base game. Yeah. As you were saying with Origins more, and the DLC. Yeah. yeah. A bit more like mystical, you know, like yeah. whereas in the normal game they, they sort of sometimes they imply things but they don't really go all the way and say so, yeah. yeah. So we interesting to see if it does that as well. Uh, but yeah, going back to Watch Dogs. So Watch Dogs <laughs> is a series that I've always been interested in, but never quite enough to actually like buy the bullet and purchase it. Mm. So given all the disturbing events happening within Australian journalism at the moment, uh, yeah. um, it's becoming increasingly apparent that we are living in this, you know, burgeoning police state, one in which powerful governmental bodies seemingly have this unrestricted ability at the moment to access the private documentation of individuals and in tow the ability to persecute individuals who divulge or publish sensitive information um, which some of our core institutional bodies are making. So Watch Dogs is a series that heavily focuses upon state surveillance. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they present issues surrounding individuals' rights to privacy. It is. I do find Watch Dogs funny because I I played it only a little bit. Only a little bit. Because this is back when I was living with my parents and their TV was really little and I literally couldn't read (laughs) things on the screen. It was like... 
I thought there was something wrong with me, and then we realised there literally weren't enough pixels in the TV. Yeah, it was this whole thing. Okay, that's an issue with Shadow of the Tomb Raider as well. Oh, I haven't really? gone to options to see if I can change it, but the text is so small. Oh, yeah, so all games now I whinge about because yes. you, sometimes you can change the subtitle text, which is yes. nice, but you can't change the UI yeah. text. And I was like, I'm blind, I can't see. I know, yeah. so you just spend the whole time, like, you know, leaning for yeah. the squinting. I was like, the screen, everything else is so big. Why have you... Yeah. Yeah. I totally have that problem. But, yep. but yeah, so I played Watch Dogs a little bit, mm-hmm. and I had trouble getting into it, I'm sure partly because I couldn't see what I was doing very well. Um, but I found it, and obviously this is something I do get a bit funny about, I found it a little bit edgelordy. Yes. And I also <laughs> was kind of like, it's, in, it's really interesting that you're, you're talking about state surveillance, which is definitely what it talks about, but also when you run around through the world, you can like look at everybody <laughs> else's bank account, and I was like, how is this ethically okay? They, they act like you're some cool anti-government person, but you can just steal money from random people in the street and you can see things like they've had a hard time in their life like recently had a divorce yeah. or whatever but like that doesn't change anything you can still just steal stuff and nothing oh. is, yeah so I found it a bit uh, so the affordances don't really have any procedural rhetoric there's just like it's yeah just, go and have fun yeah it's, it's sort of like this implication there but in terms of yeah the actual mechanics yeah like the actual procedure there's no so a third title, Watch Dogs Legion, has just been announced by Ubisoft and is going to be oh. shown at E3 this year. So what is really interesting about it is that it's actually being set in post-Brexit London. Oh, okay. wow. Yeah, so That's as, a big move. That is a big move. So as Twitter discussed quite fervently, it will be interesting to see how Watch Dogs Legion presents post-Brexit London and most important, uh, more importantly, sorry, the multitude of political, social, cultural, economic and technological issues that have emerged from the Brexit situation and which are going to emerge or come mm, to fruition. Like shortages and... Yeah. yeah. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of discussion surrounding an incredibly like stagnant discourse in the industry at the moment um, and that is the position of politics politics in games. Mm. So will Watch Dogs Legion be able to provide a satisfactory and believable world for players who are currently living in Britain or, you know, have been closely following what's happening with Brexit? Should we expect it to? And, you know, to what extent should AAA game developers touch topics that are newsworthy, globally relevant and sensitive if they're not able to make meaningful comments about them? Mm. So there's like all these concerns and you know, it's interesting too because there is such a like strain of thought in like the industry's public sphere at the moment about not having politics in games at all. It usually isn't founded in the whole, oh, you know, they can't make meaningful sort of messages no. and, you know, they sort of take away from the severity of these situations in reality. It's more like a... I don't want my women in my game, <laughs> you know? Or even, like, because when you were saying earlier about Detroit and how you didn't, you felt like they should have gone further with the, like, the world is falling apart, climate change thing. Yes. And it's kind of interesting because it is, I guess, that how do you find that balance of people going, oh, you're being ridiculous and this is too political, when you're like, well, this is what's happening, or saying, yeah, it's not enough. And I wonder yeah. if, they can't, if there is concern about a fallout. Or also, it's really just depressing to think about. So maybe we don't want to... Maybe we want to imagine a world where it's kind of manageable. I don't know. Well, exactly. <laughs> and that's part of the argument as well. Games mm. should be fun. Or, mm. you know, not necessarily. They don't have to be fun either. They can bring up, you know, different issues that do touch you in different ways. Like Detroit, for me, wasn't a happy game. No, I didn't get no. that specific ending for player character Kara where she ends up at the recycling factory. Oh, jeez. Okay, I, I was thinking I, I totally was okay with her. Oh, my God. Oh, I, I didn't get that. That's what I'm saying. So I, I should look up the endings. I, you yeah. should. Okay, so there's three main endings for Kara. So one ending is that, you know, you're able to bluff your way through the bus yep. station. So yep. you did 
did that. I totally, oh, I was so, so relieved. Good. I was like, yes, <laughs> I was so anxious. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. I didn't do that. Oh, no. But you end up reuniting with, oh, I've forgotten her name, the android smuggler. Oh, the yeah, yeah, lovely yeah. lady. I've totally forgotten her name. Yeah, yeah. And she takes you to the Canadian border yes. and the river. However, Luther dies. Uh, like, automatically he's dead if you go down that pathway. Alice pretty much, I think, always dies in that scenario. So Alice died in my playthrough and Kara survived. Oh, jeez. Kara can die as well, depending on what situations that you choose when you're in the boat and when the oh, security geez. boats come along and start shooting at you and destroy some of the boat capabilities. God, I was stressed enough in getting to the border where, um, you know how they, or I'm not sure if you had the same scene or not, but in the snow and they hold up everybody and you've got to try to, like, run through to get into this building. And I was just No, I didn't so, get that. Oh, that Oh my was, gosh, yeah. that was the ending for... The, the boat thing would make me more anxious. <laughs> it, was, it was awful. Ugh. Awful, but not as terrible as the recycling factory where you have all the androids, you know, lined up, not as their humanoid yeah. selves, but as their android selves. So they're looking... It's a not-so-nuanced reflection of the Holocaust and seeing, yeah. you know, all those poor Jewish people being yeah. so emaciated and being lined up. It, it was like that. Yeah. It's so, the game did some clever things, but I felt like it was. I always say it's, it's with a sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, not exactly. nuanced at any yeah. stretch. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm pretty sure Kara and Alice can be eaten by a recycling machine. Oh, wow. And you know, the. I think his name is Jerry? Yeah, no, the friendly Jer- one. The friendly one. Yeah. I can't remember his name specifically, I think right. sorry. Yeah. But and Luther, one of them can choose to sort of sacrifice themselves. Oh, so you geez. can. I know, it was so intense. Oh, that's, I'm so relieved I didn't get there. I Look know. at you killing Siri and the Witcher and then. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I'm not meant to have daughters. <laughs> you got some bad luck in these choice games. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, that's really intense. Oh, it was really intense. And at the end of the boat scenario, you have a choice as Kara. Like, if you if Alice dies, which in my playthrough she did, you have the choice to kill yourself or to mm. keep going. So, obviously, I made Kara keep going, but... An issue I have with Quantic Dreams games is that they just don't give me enough at the end. Oh, okay. It feels a bit sudden. It feels it, a bit yeah. sudden. And Heavy Rain was a bit sudden. I felt like Beyond Two Souls did it really well, where it seemed like the ending just kept going forever and yeah. you got a real closure with what happened with um, Ellen Page's character. Yeah. But Heavy Rain was the same way. You just got the certain endings and it was sort of persuasive in a way that it wanted you to replay if you didn't like your ending so it's (laughs) just like this is your little bit so in some ways it feels like the real endings endings that you want probably have a bit more closure and because that was that was often the um situation in a lot of games that had different endings wasn't it like the kind of not quite not the right ones or not the canon ones were kind of sure as if or you've hit a dead end that wasn't oops and then you the longer ones yeah more yeah life is strange for example chloe's death as an ending is far longer than the choice of the town sacrificing getting, yeah. Arcadia Bay and you know going off with her. Yeah. It's like literally like twenty seconds of just yeah. them in a car watching you know Which, the decrepit and destroyed. Fair, I feel like this in so many games and so many movies. I just sit there and I'm like, is that it? Is yeah, that it? And I feel exactly. like that all the time. I'm like, give me more. But I wonder if it is partly to hit you and go, bam, this is what happened, and then you sit there going, oh, I don't know if it is supposed to give you that effect or yeah, if it's more like. We want the fleshed out one to be the more canon one. And that annoys me, though, because, (laughs) you know, what that ending deserved just as much substance as the one where Chloe Mm. dies. Like, why make a decision-based game if you're not going to add equal weight to each outcome? I guess if they're driving away, maybe they just drive to another town. Yeah, like, if there's much to say, yeah. Yeah, maybe it's about sequels. 
you know, yeah, maybe true. they're thinking about the outcome mm-hmm. or, you know, the premises for sequels. But in Life is Strange too, it can read the system to look at the save file for your Life is Strange outcome <sighs> and it will present what you chose in Life is Strange too, because you actually sure we... go back to Arcadia Bay briefly. Oh, we better make sure we have, we play on the same yeah. device then. You should, yeah. you should, yeah. I like that. That's cool. That is cool. I got real mad actually in um, Origins a while ago because they were like, oh, this person, the hero of Feralden, I think it was from the other game. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to see my character. And like the dude rocked up and I was like, who are you? Sorry, I was like, Harris, they said they, they read my safe files, but this man's turned up. And I was, yeah. And like clearly, only, I don't know, it just, I don't know if I only read some of it or I couldn't access it for whatever reason, but I was really, I was like, I don't want to do this guy's quest. It's not my person. And the default's a male, which by the way is really good. I like, yeah, it's just one of those things. But uh, moving on to you. Yeah. <laughs> In the, you know, five minute section that's turned into a 20 minute that's section. Okay. That's fine. What have you been playing this week? Well, I actually have, yeah, I've just moved house. So I haven't really played much at all. Um, we set up the PlayStation and everything, yep. but I've just been falling asleep really quick. just doesn't surprise anyone. But now we have room for both of our gaming PCs to be next to each other on a desk, which is really nice. Like, there's a bit more room, and we can totally game together with friends in the same area. That's so cute. Before, it was very squishy. Yeah, yeah, I was really chuffed. Because of the PCs being set up, I kind of am really excited to play some multiplayer games. I have Ark. The survival. Oh yeah. yes, yeah. I've, I think I played it for all of twenty minutes a while ago. Couldn't quite get the hang of it, and was like, I'll do it this later. And Magicka, which is sort of I don't know, top down three quarter RPG, but you control like this little mage, and everybody else controls a mage, and you can combine spells. It's all a bit oh, tongue in cheek. Yeah, it's, yeah. So that'd be a fun one. I was gonna play um, Children of the Nile, Alexandria. Oh. I really like my ancient Egypt city builders. I played mm-hmm. Pharaoh before that, and I love Pharaoh to bits. Basically, my problem with PC games, it just wouldn't work yep. after like half an hour of trying. So then I played Mini Ninjas, which mm. is a it's a kids game. It's super cute. It's a little platformer. It's beautiful. Like the graphics are really simple but really pretty. And you're this ninja, and you just you have friends, and you go and defeat these evil guys. The evil guys have been like it used to be animals so when you defeat them they turn back into animals and it's just all very cute and happy kids game just to pass by an hour while I'm half asleep (laughs) (laughs) so yeah yeah, that sounds amazing you should get a 3DS for your like your couch I actually have a one oh yeah and I just I got Pokemon Sun for it um a while ago when I went away on holiday to play on the plane and I just yeah I really should get back into 3DS I kind of forgot about it Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm not buying another console. Astral coming out in August. <laughs> Which one's that? The one by um, Platinum. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh, geez. Which is another action RPG. <laughs> you know you want it. I know. <laughs> well, perfect topic because... <laughs> <laughs> So just a quick note as well before we move on, E3 is obviously on at the moment, which is really exciting. So I'm going to be getting a lot of new information about new releases and we are able to look at the specific genres that have come to dominate the industry in Mm. recent years. Open world. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Before we consider genre in more detail, um, what are your favourite game genres? What are you looking forward to at E3 this year? (laughs) So I kind of... 
was like, I don't know, how do I, there's so many lists of game genres. On Steam, there's one way, on PlayStation, there's another way. So I went on Moby Games, a game database, but it's uh, less a wiki and more like interested in the mechanics and stuff of games. So I mm-hmm. thought that would be a good site to look at. And I just went, okay, clearly I'm action-adventure RPG. <laughs> Action for me kind of means maybe shooter-style games or anything with the emphasis on fighting in real time. I mean, the only shooter, I say that with air quotes, I've played is Bioshock and I keep getting told off because it's not a shooter, so whatever. Um, I would say Bioshock is a shooter. It is, apparently. So apparently it's not held in high esteem partly because I use the shotgun for long and short range. <laughs> and since that was possible, it's not like a proper shooter. And I was like, mm, whatever, whatever. <laughs> That's actually part of the reason why I struggle with Bioshock is because I don't like that style of play. Yeah, I, yeah. Anytime I've tried to play another shooter that's got more emphasis on weapons, I'm like, how am I supposed to know what the silhouette of the gun is for a start? Like, I'm not, I'm like not American to say something really assumptive, but also, I, how do people know this? This isn't normal. Like, this, to me, that's not normal knowledge, and it's just something we learn through games. But that just drives me ballistic. I don't know what anything does. No, like, I was sitting there, and when I was with uh, my ex, mm. he would be sitting there next to me on the couch, and I'd be playing like a trying to play a shooter and he would be like use such and such gun for long range I'm like yeah. how am I meant to know this I'm like, getting honestly. better with different <laughs> games like now I can start telling but so I'm like I know now like when to use a shotgun when to use a rifle da 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 but yeah anyway. I mean I only know the basics from like Silent Hill you got your pistol oh, yeah. your handgun your rifle your shotgun and your machine gun <laughs> see that's pretty good I feel like you know you know enough to get by <laughs> thank you survival horror <laughs> um, yeah yeah so actually yeah. Um, other than that, adventure for me is more open world, mm-hmm. which we'll be talking about later. Um, we've maybe fighting, maybe some puzzles, a bit more peaceful. And for me, RPG is like, I mean, we all know what RPGs are, but I would say it's basically an adventure game with a strong focus on story or on your character development. And that's what kind of makes it different. But yeah, like when I was looking at these categories, I was like, well, I've just said the RPG is a bit like adventure. So how useful are, are these categories really? Yep. And we'll be talking about that later. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm the same. Definitely action, adventure and RPG are my go-to genres, my favourites. Uh, I, I don't mind playing other genres occasionally. And I'd really love to get into strategy and tactical games more significantly in the future, such as Metal Gear Solid. I've been wanting to play that for oh. years, but I've just never had the time. And all the times I've attempted, I'm just like, uh, you know, I can't be bothered learning this new system, yeah, so, so you put it down. Yeah. But I definitely do want to come back to it one day. But as you were saying, it becomes like evident really quickly that there is this hybridity between mm. genres, and uh, that makes it really difficult for us to really define what a genre as being applied to video games is. So there's also, I guess, the issue of perception as well. Like other people are going to focus on different elements of genre and, you know, put forward elements that they believe are idiosyncratic or belonging to that specific genre. So Mm. it wouldn't surprise me if you were to go into a search engine and type something along the lines of hard or soft RPG mechanics that you would start to, you know, come across conversations on forums and the like that really start to dissect what is an RPG and what isn't. And what games might have RPG elements elements but aren't RPGs. Like, it's just the whole game again, real game, yes. not real game. I was yeah. like, I think you guys need to calm down about your I, ca- I just don't think it's that important. Yeah, but the fact that there it isn't clear kind of shows you that it's not that necessary. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And why would you you're not gonna be able to find some objective truth as we will find <laughs> <laughs> in the following conversation. So moving on to genre more specifically um in the literature, what do we think genre means? How do we define genre? 
Okay, well, my first thought about genre is that it kind of gives you an idea of what it expects in whatever piece of media that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, okay, it basically refers to this kind of block of things, block of elements, and that's kind of what we can expect. In terms of my work, I've talked about genres a bit as categories or as territories. Mm -hmm. I've spoken before because I love some Dillard's Guitari. I mean, Buchanan, uh, in 2010, he kind of says that genres are useful in that they differentiate different texts according to composition, structure, and subject matter. So that's kind of three subcategories we can use. Yep. Uh, Chandler and Monday, they talk a bit about genres, and they say that they have distinctive textual features, including subject matter and themes, so similar to Buchanan, uh, setting, narrative form, characterization, iconography, and filmic techniques. And they also have different functions, pleasures, audiences, most of involvement, styles of interpretation, and text reader relationships, which is an awful lot of words, but basically there's a bunch of elements here. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So moving on to what I did this week in a bit of research. So genre as a term is incredibly complex. Uh, I'm not sure if we're really going to be able to provide a sufficient answer to what genre is simply because there are just so many different ways in which it can be defined. So according to Clark et al. uh, 2017 in their article called Why Video Game Genres Fail, video games are particularly difficult to apply genre to simply because of their interactive nature. So Mm. obviously with film and music and literature, I don't want to call them necessarily passive, but there isn't that explicit interactive process occurring with them as we consume them. That adds this extra dimension or difficulty to applying genre to games. So basically a lot of the existing literature on genre theory in game studies is very easily critiqued. So there has been an abundance of uh, different studies that have come out or theories surrounding genre, like different taxonomies, categorizations, but they just don't quite make the mark because there are just all these elements that you need to take into consideration. So Clark and I also note that there's also this tendency for games to be placed within broad categories and this is an issue as there are games that can differentiate quite substantially in their constructive elements. So they actually use the example of Super Mario Brothers and Grand Theft Auto. Oh yeah. Yeah, so I think on a specific website, unfortunately I didn't write it down, so it might have been Moby Games actually, Mm -hmm. they put Super Mario Bros and Grand Theft Auto in the same category and obviously that's an issue because we know Super Mario Bros and Grand Theft Auto are quite different to Mm. one another so there almost seems to be this desire to default to broad categories with games but at the same time that just isn't sufficient enough either. Because there's this tendency to have heaps of subcategories, but in the long run you still end up needing these broad categories to be functional, right? Yeah, exactly. But what Clark et al. sort of note is that one of the primary reasons we even have genre is due to consumer or individual interest. We have certain genres we like, Mm. then in marking a certain product or cultural artefact as being of a certain genre, then we can seek that out. You know, it's about information services. Mm. So that is really interesting and as I was saying before I, I don't think we're going to really come down to a solidified answer of what genre in mm. games actually is well, it is yeah. it's weird because you know when we talk about genres we know what we're talking about but the more you look into it the more you're like oh some of these genres don't really make sense at yeah. all in the way that they're constructed because we've got assumptions about what we're talking about but yes. once we start picking it apart which I guess to me suggests maybe it's not so important in games to have yeah. to talk about but useful enough to use as a tool but maybe not something to get too hung up about but we'll see where we go yes <laughs> okay so moving on 
what are standard game genres and how are they different from, for example, film genres? Okay, so I've saved a bunch <laughs> of articles or game ch- or chapters from books that talk a bit about genres and they all have slightly different ones. But there was a list by Faisal and Peloton Miami and they kind of said, look, this is basically what we think is standard. Mm-hmm. They had action, shooting, IPG, strategy, simulation, sports, racing and fighting games. And I guess I felt like this was pretty well-rounded. I mean, it's basically mechanics and theme. Yes. Uh, I guess puzzle is kind of missing there, but it depends if you put puzzle and strategy, right? For Kostiskian, game genres really differ a lot from film genres because they're defined by a shared collection of core mechanics. So yes, mechanics seem to be the big thing. Mm -hmm. Because while film genres are based on theme, he says, game genres are more based on the gameplay dynamic. Mm -hmm. So a drama film, we know when we say it's a drama movie, it's about relationships. Like, okay, we can be pretty sure of that. And a Western will probably be about cowboys. (laughs) But a shooter tells us less about the story and more about what the player does. Let's say... I'm probably going to get in deep trouble for saying this. Let's just pretend Red Dead could be categorised exclusively as a shooter. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, let's say that Bioshock can be described as a shooter, but they're so fundamentally different in the way they play out. So it tells you a bit about that mechanic, but it doesn't tell you about necessarily the themes or the story or anything like that. In my work, I've looked at a bit as game mechanics as refrains. I love my refrains. Mm -hmm. And game genres as territories. So again, for Dilla's Katari, refrains are repetitions of things, but with a little bit of difference every time. Uh, and territories are kind of those groupings, those spaces that are established or structured by some kind of norm or element that refrain that is repeated. Uh, and those, so therefore those refrains are kind of used to establish territories. So, you know, we can see, I guess a game mechanic is a refrain, but repeat that game mechanic in certain ways until we establish a genre. Refrains, of course, have three functions. So the first is create a safe space in chaos. So the way to think about game mechanics as a way to provide stability in a a game that's otherwise kind of new or kind of confusing, like using WASD on the keyboard, we know that's the convention, that Mm -hmm. that's the controls we use. Or an NPC sort of glowing or in wow with the exclamation mark above their head. That's a trope that we know. So in any other, if you play another game that's so different, but you have a little uh, mechanical element like that, that gives you that comfort or that knowledge of I kind of have some idea of what to do. Mm -hmm. They provide a bit of structure. The second function of the refrain is to create a home territory. So here I kind of think about collections of mechanics that establish a genre. Pinchbeck talks a bit about Doom and says that the core affordances for uh, first-person shooters are a first-person perspective, a dangerous environment, enemies to destroy in lots of ways, a linear story of conflict, and the ability to move, look, jump, run, crouch, sneak, and shoot. So all of those things, Pinchbeck says, are a collection of kind of refrains or a collection of mechanics that helped establish the genre of mm-hmm. FPSs. And the third function of the refrain is opening up to something new. And here I talk a bit about converging different genres, and that's what game genres are interesting for, right? They mix a lot, and that's kind mm-hmm. of that the third function of the refrain. Let's try to do something new with this mechanic. And also, like, different people label the same game under different genres, so it's all that interconnectedness that's there. So that's my (laughs) skill. That is really interesting, like, particularly thinking about, obviously, E3 is on. So it'd be interesting to apply the refrain to previous 
E3s and seeing how even shows are set up mm. in order to, you know, take from the past but also feed into that discourse that the industry has always held on to tightly and that is the future. Yeah, the game industry yeah. seems to be so much about nostalgia and yet yes. so much about innovation that it's that constant yeah. balance, right? Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. Oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> so... Unfortunately, I didn't look at the distinction between game genres and film genres, but I did want to mention another piece of uh, research that I found that I thought was really interesting just in regards to, I guess, the process of academic research, so methodologies. So one conference paper that I came across by Doherty et al. 2018 called The Recategorization of Video Game Genres was of particular interest as they actually provide five potential categorization systems for researchers who are studying human human behaviour. So obviously in academic literature more broadly and looking at social psychology and the like, there is a lot of emphasis on literature Mm. looking at personalisation and game genres. Yes. But as we know from the conversations that we're having, (laughs) genre differentiates wildly and that you have all these different theorists that are presenting all these different systems. So that has a lot of implications for research, right, when it comes to consensus, Mm. because two studies could be looking at the same sort of phenomena, but they're using different categorization systems. They haven't um, produced these theories or categorization systems themselves. They're taken from other theorists, but they present five categorization systems, one that's based on aesthetics, one that's on control action, one that is focused on psychological effects of game attributes, and categorization by perceptual, attentional, and cognitive enhancements. So that's really interesting. That was a quote as well, by the way, Uh sorry. So I'm not going to go through all these categories, but they range from genres that are obviously focused on what is defined as aesthetics. So looking at the purpose to play, you know, are you playing because you're wanting a sense of like exploration? Are you Mm, playing because mm. you're wanting a certain sensation? Yeah, the player motivations theory. Yes, we should definitely talk about that. We should. Yes. Or, you know, they go into this cognitive enhancement categorization as well, which is choosing a game because it's possibly going to help you with bodily coordination. There's just so many different ways that you can classify games. It's incredible and obviously quite important to conducting scholarly research Mm. into these areas. Yeah, making sure you understand, okay, this is how I'm defining this. Yes. Just making sure that we understand that and even that my participants, if I'm talking to people, understand that as well. Exactly, yeah. Mm. So that is quite interesting. Um, Moving on, however, uh, what are some key games that you feel have challenged genre or have done something unexpected considering their genre? Because as you were saying before, while there may be these different systems in play, we do have an idea of what genre is and we know that it is composed of specific tropes mm. and mechanics and themes. What is a game that really feeds into this for you or challenges mm. its own genre? I always fall back on Portal for this kind of question mm-hmm. because, okay, it's a puzzle game, so sure, we have this cube, we've got to do things with this cube to get to open this door, fine. It's a puzzle game, but it has story. That set off, I feel, a whole range of puzzle games with a bit more story after that. You know, like, GLaDOS got awards for being one of the greatest villains of all time. And she's hilarious. Like, <laughs> she's mean and she's funny every time she's there. I, I loved playing Portal for the story of the villain GLaDOS, you know, which is so odd for a simple puzzle game. She's so sarcastic. It's this atmosphere that when, like, you do things the opposite of what she tells you to do. <laughs> and there's one area where the barrier that disintegrates and there's a way to get past it. 
and she basically says something real bitchy like oh you think you're so clever and just integrates it in your hands and those little details that add to story and environment that in a puzzle game are quite unusual right Mm -hmm. and of course in the second one Wheatley is absolutely hilarious as well I love Wheatley other than that, you know, other than the kind of story theme, Portal use shooter mechanics, right? They use shooter mechanics for something completely different to what's that was considered normal and that's something that's really innovative. I think we talk about this a bit more in a later episode, but RPG elements are being added to all kinds of games now as well. That's, yep. that's one thing when you said E3, I'm, I'm thinking I should have a look because I'm 90% of them, I imagine, will be about RPGs because that mm-hmm. seems to be the new thing. And when I say that, I'm thinking of things like a levelling system where you get skill points that you can invest in different things and items to equip and to manage, some element of choice and discussion, whether that choice is meaningful or not, which is kind of part of my, I guess, complaint about (laughs) when I was talking about Assassin's Creed Origins and Shadow of Mordor and all these other games that all starting to feel like the same game. And what made it interesting before was that it wasn't me. I wasn't, I'm not meant to be Bayek. I like, I'm learning about Bayek's fascinating story as him, but I'm not making my own personal character. And I feel like that's a very big distinction that gets missed a bit. That's really interesting. (laughs) No, I totally agree with that because when I think of, I don't want to call them like pure RPGs because, you know, then we're feeding into those discourses that are rampant online. Mm. Uh, But certainly when I think about traditional RPGs, the RPGs where there is more of a, I guess, fantasy setting. Uh, I really do think about like character customization yeah. and like the creation of your own avatar. While something that probably is more like action adventure, you mm. do get a player character that is provided to you. So I think that there are those distinctions. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, Elder Scrolls versus yes. like Shadow of Mordor exactly. or Assassin's Creed. Yeah. 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 So. I really struggled about (laughs) thinking about this question before coming to recording today because, I mean, given that video game genre is sort of all over the shop, you could, depending on what system you're applying, argue that a great number of games do something different. (laughs) Yeah, everyone does something a little bit different. (laughs) So I'm going to ignore that for a moment and choose something that I know is completely and utterly jarring when it comes to its own genre, and that is Doki Doki Literature Club, which we spoke about a bit in the last episode. So... Obviously, we spoke about that in relation to romance and sex, but we didn't actually go into specifics about what it actually is as a genre. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Doki Doki Literature Club is both a psychological horror game, but it's also a run-of-the-mill dating sim. So the first half of the game implements all these specific tropes and mechanics associated with dating sims. You're put into the position of a blank player character. <laughs> very blank, yeah. Very blank that you can put yourself into and... The aim of the game is to choose a love interest or multiple love interests and be able to appeal to them through discussion. So there's a lot of choice making that occurs. I don't want to say it's like luck based because you are making. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of like because the focus of the game initially is that you go into this literature club and they write poems. So when you write your poem, there's three different girls, I think, at the time. Yes. Um, and you pick words to comprise your poem, and certain categories of words are associated with certain yes. girls. So and you they pick do ones have sprites like. as well, and the sprites yeah. will jump and they up. Jump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you, you do know who you're, you're going yes. to be able to romance yes. yeah, through that mechanic. But yes, so halfway through the game, these mechanics are completely and utterly uprooted by these very 
morbid psychological horror trope. So, you know, text becomes distorted. You start to see, like, messed up images of the girls that you are interacting with. They start saying really, really sensitive and deeply disturbing uh, terms in your discussions with them. You know, there's all these, like, implied sort of situations happening with them. Some of them are contemplating suicide. Others of them have potentially undergone some kind of uh, sexual assault, you know, all these deep themes, you know, are suddenly drawn out of what was you were basically playing an hour ago, a very vanilla <laughs> dating sim has become something that has become utterly terrifying. The yeah. game itself will shut itself and you have to reopen That's it. That's one of my favourite things. Yes. Breaking the fourth wall, I was like, this is genius. Blew my mind. It's just yeah. terrifying because yeah. it actually feels as if you are no longer as, you know, this typically Japanese male protagonist. <laughs> you no longer have control. And some of the elements I think that freaked me out the most was when the game looked like it was glitching. One, yes. The one that made me shriek, and I think was one of the first things that happened was it was Yuri, I think, and her eye just started moving to the side of her yeah. face. And it really freaked me out. Any strange facial glitches, and sometimes they flash real quick with yes. some different picture. And I'm like, I think the screen's turning red, and slowly it'll turn red. I just, you can see, I'm so excited. I just thought it was so brilliant. It is so brilliant. And there's also this really uppity, happy-go-lucky yeah. soundtrack. And it becomes distorted yes. as well oh, and at so certain points. There was one bit that was really <laughs> off-putting. And it was it was when the, the screen slowly filled up red. And mm-hmm. I think we just found Yuri had spoilers. Yep. But I'm just going <laughs> to... <That's okay. laughs> so at one point in the game... I won't tell you why this happened. I'll just yes, say that. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's a bit better. Um, one of the, lo- the love interests that I was going for, naturally, um, you end up, she's dead in the classroom. And what happens is this: the game script doesn't allow you to leave. So you literally sit there watching her and there's no sound. And there's this garbled text at the bottom of the screen. And you can't read it. It's like, honestly, yep. just virtually winging. And it just keeps going and yeah. going and going. And like, you're kind of trying to think, we're, we're like, oh, what do we do? We're a bit confused. And then slowly we realised... The, the lighting in the classroom was changing because time was passing and her body was decomposing. Posing. And yeah. we started freaking out. And then... That was awful. And, that was yeah. like, potentially the scariest moment of the game. Uh, yeah, that freaked me out. Yeah. But then it goes, bam, suddenly it's the next morning and it goes... Like all the happy music's playing and that was the most jarring moment I think I had playing it. I forgot about that until then. Oh my God. That was so intense. And it is worthwhile noting that these characters before then are complete and utter stereotypes. Oh, yeah. You have Yuri, which is the shy, studious girl. Yeah. You have Natsuke, who's, you know, that typical shorter, like, super cute I'm angry, boisterous. but cute. Don't yes. call me cute. Yeah. And then you have, oh, I forgot, Monica, who we won't spoil the character of yeah. Monica, but she is your beautiful, model-esque, like, leader, leader yeah. type uh, stereotype. And those those stereotypes very quickly change and it is really disturbing (laughs) seeing them suddenly flip because we do find some comfort in genre Mm. and when genre changes it becomes completely jarring and maybe it's because this is psychological horror and so there is that certain sensation and desire to invoke a certain sort of emotion that is like associated with it but I would say that if you were playing a game and its genre suddenly changed then your relationship with that game very quickly changed 
changes as oh, well. Yeah. And I feel like Doki Doki Literature Club is an extreme example of that. Yeah, and I'd yeah. love to see more of that in the future because it was so much fun to play. As yeah. terrible as that sounds, <laughs> just because it was so different. Well, it's free, so everyone should get it. Yes. It's, I think as like I'm smiling and getting so excited <laughs> when we talk about this, which sounds really wrong because it's, yes. it is a horror game. But there is something so wonderful about being shocked by a change in a game. <laughs> And there's something really nice about being surprised, I think, yes. especially, yeah, people could often, they kind of know what's going to happen or whatever. It's so nice to be shocked in a way. And as much as it was for a, a horror thing, it wasn't upsetting. I found it really strangely exciting, I suppose, yes. is the right word. Yeah. yeah. And it is interesting because there is criticism online about how it toes the line between being exploitive of mental illness and, oh. you know, being a horror title. Mm-hmm. But I honestly, I, I found that it was quite effective in how it presented its things because that, you are playing it for entertainment, but I felt really attached to the characters. Yeah, you feel upset for you them. You do. Yeah. Like, seeing Yuri's body decompose was awful. And, it, you know, it really brought me back to surprisingly it brought me back to high school when I learned that some of my friends were cutting themselves oh, and you know that could you don't want to think about situations like that where they are alone mm, and mm. Yeah, I thought Doki Doki Lush Club did bring up some interesting issues mm. and uh, while that criticism is valid in some ways I think that horror as a genre which we'll be talking about <laughs> you know in a few weeks time yeah. is a great genre in thinking about more serious issues because mm, mm. obviously games are systems that do reflect issues in reality they're not created in vacuums going no. back to the politics and games <laughs> and that's the thing right like we, you can be critical but you also have to be willing to allow people to at least try to experiment yes. them as mediums because if you shut down everything too quick and say you're going to do it wrong so there's no point doing it you're never yeah. going to really get anywhere and i find that shutting down kind of um attitude really problematic in gaming i feel yeah. so too okay so I guess our last question for today is, do we find genres useful or in what ways can they be useful? (laughs) I feel like genres are less useful now than in the past for me, but kind of for a good reason, because I feel like I do play a variety of games and games are increasingly becoming varied, right? So for that reason, I suppose, like when I was a kid, what do you do? You play a platformer, right? Nice and simple, but now it's a bit more complex. I do think that Steam's use of tags rather than categories is really telling and I find I really enjoy that. Because Magicka, for example, has tags comedy, co-op, action, fantasy, and online co-op. So co-op and action sort of describe the mechanics to an extent, I would say, whereas comedy and fantasy more describe the theme. So those tags are useful in that they're saying there are multiple elements to this game and it's hard to pick one single genre. So I kind of enjoyed that. I suppose, you know, people might be more interested in spreading out in that way. So if they want to play a funny game, they'll click the funny tag and a whole bunch of different games will come up. Not just Magic Eyes and RPG, but also other games that are action, other games that are puzzle or whatever. So it might help you find more games you enjoy that are different. It might Mm -hmm. not necessarily about being cutting off, which is a really good thing. Yep. And um, I think this is kind of a topic for another episode, which I'm quite enthusiastic about. But of course, genre and genre tropes kind of help players know what games they do like. And there's a lot of work on this in personality types, which I kind of have a lot of opinions on. So I'm looking forward (laughs) to talking about that another time. (laughs) So yeah, the risk there for me is being deterministic and restrictive and all of that. But I feel like because they're blending and because we're starting to use things like tags rather than just categories, there's some opening up. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Uh, Genres, you know, for me are useful, perhaps not as useful as they used to be. Now that we do have these systems in place that are a bit more fluid, you know, you can really 
personalise certain systems like Steam in order to get a good look at what games you're potentially going to be interested in. Mm. Though saying that, I am someone that tends to play the same sort of games. I do have favourite, you know, genres and subgenres. I do like my action RPGs. <laughs> I do like my third-person survival horror games. Yes, you um, do. <laughs> <laughs> those are the two genres I think would define what I play. So. I do find genre particularly uh, useful as well when it comes to reviewing and mm. critique. You know, yeah, it is you've partic- done some reviews. That would be quite hard. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, when we're reading a review, so in some ways genres almost have this pedagogical um, functionality as well in that when someone mentions a game having weak RPG elements, already we know what that probably means. Probably means they've just been tacked on or, you know, they haven't been implemented in order to fit whatever other genre has been chosen for uh, the game. And this was actually a really good point that Clark et al. uh, 2017 make. They point out that genre is profoundly important in the actual production-to-shelf process that games undergo. So in picking a genre... As a game developer, you are fundamentally choosing what this game is going to reflect and, in turn, how that game is going to be marketed to consumers. Yeah, it's all, a lot of it's marketing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So we know that game, the games industry is a really precarious one, so genre is quite an important consideration because you've got to get them sales. Mm. So... I've certainly been pulled by genre marketing before. I'm not going to lie. Like, when Resident Evil 2 remake was being advertised, I'm like, I'm buying that game. Yeah, you know, that's, well, that's right up yeah. my alley. You know what but I mean? That's, and it, that's useful for you as well. It is. Yeah. It is. And, yeah. you know, if it had been marketed in a way that wasn't... I, I mean, I don't know how you would market it as not strictly survival horror because <laughs> that is exactly what it is. Mm. But if you were to market a game that took from a few different genres, then you could definitely run into issues because even us talking about what we like, mm-hmm. there are certain genres that we haven't mentioned. So if we were to add, say, something like racing to yeah. you know, one of one of those games and then basically be marketed as racing, Which, we're not going to pick it up. It's really funny now you've said that because now all the games that come out also are like, oh, by the way, you can have a race in this game. Yeah. Like, even Dragon in Origins, they're like, you can race a horse. And I was like, why would I want to read that? <laughs> and I read that. Yes, yeah, so it's funny yeah. now you've just said that. That's made me realise they. Obviously, it's not the focus. Someone who likes race a racing game isn't going to buy Red Dead or The Witcher to race a horse. Yes. But you do start seeing elements crossing over. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just thinking about open world games with RPG elements, it seems like every game is an open world game it with is. RPG elements. It totally is. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's not a. Some aren't as like purist or implement those RPG elements as much as others, or even open world yes. elements as much as others. But that's how. They they're going to market it because that's what's in at the moment and that's what people like. Yeah, I completely, yeah, yeah 100%. We can yeah. talk about this yes, more soon. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all I really have to say about that. Yeah. Um, genre is important, but with video games, it is incredibly difficult to apply systems of genre because there are so many layers to video games. Mm-hmm. So in I think in regards to individuals and capitalism and consumption, I think that, you know, there is this there is this sort of library of terms that we have and we do generally understand what they mean. But, you know, going back to Doherty et al., they have very much important concerns about what genre means for research mm. and implementing classification <laughs> systems into research in order to have some kind of consensus around what is actually being studied. Yeah, it's problematic because it's flaky and overlaps a lot, but Also, sometimes we need to use them. Exactly. So sometimes they're important. You know, I'm not sitting in bed late at night thinking about whether or not... (laughs) 
<laughs> the Witcher 3 is a purist RPG. But, you know, I guess when it comes to other areas, like information services as well, it is quite important that genre is in place. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Fantastic. See you next time. Bye. Bye.